Hi, I'm Don Mackey, welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting-edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org. Hello, this is Don Mackey, your host with this edition of Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. I'd like to introduce my friend and colleague, a professor, and part of our story capture team in Ord, David Iaquinta. And so, David, welcome to our podcast today. Well, thanks very much, Don. It's really a great pleasure to be here. Well, terrific. So let's jump right in. David, you've got deep experience as a sociologist. You've worked in different parts of the world. And more recently, you've been involved in visiting ORD, doing interviews in ORD, and capturing insights. And so I'd just like you to kind of start out by sharing your impressions of ORD and why you think it's succeeding where so many other rural communities are struggling. There's so much to share and so little time to do it, but let me try to hit some high points, especially with this opening question. Obviously, your viewers or listeners are well aware that smaller rural non-metropolitan areas, communities like Ord with several thousand people maximum, are facing, in general, depopulation, aging of their populations, disinvestment, declining incomes all those things that we certainly have identified as the general features of smaller community life today. ORD has bucked those trends, and that's part of what we've been able to document in the work we've been doing. They've held on to their economy. They've grown that economy in some significant ways appropriate for a small community in ways that really seem counterintuitive. They're strongly cooperative in their orientation a very community-oriented perspective. It's broadly embraced in the community, at least through the interviews that we've done with both public and entrepreneurial private sector individuals. It's shared across the board. They've made significant investment in leadership development in that community. The organization or the work has been consolidated around what they call the Sinovation Valley Leadership Academy, SVLA, And it's been hugely successful, applied not just to older community members and even the younger entrepreneurial community members, but also to students in the high school. And the impact has been galvanizing throughout the community. Philanthropy was a big part, obviously, that most communities may have access to. Often, they don't even realize that it might be there or benefited from a significant early gift to a community foundation. I wouldn't say it was the determining factor, but it was a factor and an important one. Their significant for them was the state legislative change that enabled the low interest property sales tax loan program. And we found a number of small enterprises and even uh, medium enterprises that were able to take advantage of this And it wasn't just access to capital per se. It was a specific kind of capital, bridging capital, that allowed them to create that resilient space between needs and actual 
cash value and revenue on hand. So it gave them the flexibility and the mental and psychological freedom to experiment a bit and to grow with some hitches here and there. And that was a theme that came through again and again. And I would be remiss if I did not use the word that a key player in this Bob Stoll uses, imaginuity. It's his invented word. And I think you can figure out what it means. But the very use of that word and the word itself is a direct vehicle expressing not just the idea, but the reality of how pervasive their approach to an abundant mindset of community orientation really is. And then I would say that you can look at another key player there, Gaylord Boylison, and his deep roots in that community, his determination, and his indefatigable abundance mindset come through over and over in so many ways, not just in his own approach, but in its rather infectious quality to others in the community. This is not painting a Pollyanna picture here, or even saying that everything rests on these two individuals, but they are exemplars of what makes this community really work. So these are some of the features that really stand out to me from the work we've been doing. Thank you, David. And of course, part of what you've been doing is a set of very detailed interviews that will be part of the collection of stories that we're going to share about Ord. But as a sociologist, this is really in your wheelhouse regarding the critical role of leadership. And I think some insights that are unique to you that you picked up in your work in Ord, kind of leadership, you use the terms neighboring, reconciliation. We ran into it when you shared your stories back with the parties you had interviewed, and they really didn't want to deal with or address past challenges. They really wanted to focus on the future. It seems to me that that's a really important insight. Could you share more on what you mean by these terms, neighboring, abundance, reconciliation? Because it does seem to be a key factor in allowing this community to move from some very difficult times to continuing to focus on the positive and what they could do to build their community. The bell you heard was a reminder to me to add a fourth term to your lexicon, and that is intentionality. That is not exclusively my invented term. It was one that, again, came up repeatedly in interviews, particularly with respect to Tanner Hackle and his interviews. The intentionality that he recognized was a key part of the community that enabled him to create a very, very successful construction company with a broad reach throughout the state and somewhat into the larger region, but firmly grounded in Ord. So yeah, these are interesting concepts and your listeners could easily do some quick Google searches on some of these. And the interesting thing that you would find is that there's a lot of sort of pop business advice pop psychology out there that embraces these terms. But as someone who teaches social psychology, the abstract sense of how relations work between people and the interplay between individuals and groups, I know that they rest on very sound social psychological research and understanding. Neighboring is a central concept for me in thinking about ORD because it really is that community orientation. It's that win-win focus what uh, Fisher and Yuri would refer to as getting to yes. 
seeing in the situation how you can have shared interests only if you can get off your positions. And positions tend to be very myopic. They tend to be very self-centered and they're fixed, they're rigid. So when you have someone that you're butting heads with with a different position, it's sort of my way or the highway. Getting to yes says we have shared interests, let's work on them. Those common interests become, in some sense, the destiny of the community. When you can get that going on in the community itself, people's orientations shift. So neighboring, whether it's in not just what we call just neighbors, where people are nice to one another, but the actual investiture in each other in under critical periods of time or stressful periods of time where you really stand up and stand in to provide support for those individuals in ways that are thoroughly meaningful, even when you might disagree with those people, even when they might be politically different from you, even when they might be ethnically, racially, religiously different from you, that there is a sense that really draws people together. And I write a little bit about that, as I think, in Nebraska and in the harsh prairie environment. There are deep roots of this, that people needed this to survive under the harsh conditions that they face. The abundance mindset, the glass half full would be the simple thing to say. It's a growth mindset. And you'll find lots of that reference and people pitching that on the internet. But it really is an abundance mindset shifting away from focusing on scarcity and barriers and beginning to really focus on your capacities are already there. You just need to tap them. You need to bring them into focus on opportunities. You need to shift away from seeing things as challenges or barriers and focus on them as opportunities. And as soon as you shift that focus individually, you're sort of outward directed. And when a community does that collectively, the whole community can see very different alternatives out there. I might use the term, they can become visionary, but not in that mystical kind of half crazy sense, but the ability to visualize a different way of being, a different future for themselves, and a different meaning collectively for how they will individually and collectively be better off. And I think we see that in spades in the org community. Intentionality, as Gina Hackle put it, focusing on your highest intention. What's my highest intention in this interaction or this situation? Not letting yourself get deterred by the petty issues that come up in the situation or your personal peccadillos or winning the point. That's the old phrase of, win the battle and lose the war. When you focus on that highest intention and you are intentional about that in all your interactions, you sidestep a lot of the things that derail the interaction and the progress for individuals, for the relationship, for the community. That intentionality really underlies what I write about in this paper, the way people are very clear about telling the narrative, telling their story in their own terms. And as I point out, it's not that our respondents didn't share with us some of their anxieties, some of their buffeting, their trauma that they faced at times, but they refused to write their story based on that. They are aware that it happened, but it is not the defining characteristic. And they write their narrative and tell their narrative 
what an outsider might see as boosterism or public relations, but it's not that at all. It's using the intentionality of their storytelling to bring their future clearly into reality. By stating it as so, it becomes so. And it really does seem to be a positive orientation that is very much afoot in that small community. It's an old concept, the power of positive thinking. It's been around for a long time. Attitude really does matter. And it doesn't matter pop psychology or social science research. It's true. And what you tell yourself becomes very much often a reality. It may not be that defining something positively automatically means it will be positive, but it's almost a dead certainty that if you start out by telling yourself you can't do something or it's not possible, well, you will surely find out it's not possible and you can't do it. So there's no guarantee of the success, but you can remove the guarantee of the lack of success. And that I think is really important. And tied lastly to that intentionality is agency or reflexive thinking, the ability to see yourself as an actor inside of a context. So that's me as a person inside my community and recognizing that they're not independent things. There's an interaction, a two-way street going on. And I need to be able to see myself with the ability of not just self-determination, but self-action in the name of goals that represent my higher intentions. So that intentionality is very much a part of things. And again, Tanner was very clear in his interviews about how powerful that was for him personally, his family life, and his business. And I think that speaks volumes to the reality of it. Lastly, is reconciliation. And I've kind of referred to this Moving on, don't dwell on the past conflicts and the sites. The past is not inevitably the prologue to the future. Things happen, we grow from them, we have to let them go. And again, I would tie this to orienting towards your highest intentions. So I've tried to put these in kind of everyday language for your listeners, but I can guarantee you there's good social psychological research that underlies each of these principles. The key is individuals are not just individuals in a vacuum. They interact within a network, an ecosystem, an environment that ties people and structures and processes together. And the way we behave is what gives life to those processes and what animates the structures. So I think ORD's got all of these features working for it at this point. And those descriptors become so important. And our friends at the Nebraska Community Foundation oftentimes talk about that culture trumps strategy every day. And it would seem to me that Ord has a culture now or a growing culture that embraces these concepts of neighboring, abundance, intentionality, reconciliation. And we might frame that as civic capacity to do development. One of the remarkable things about ORD and its region is over the last 20 years, we've at least documented as part of our story capture, nearly a quarter of a billion dollars of new investment in everything from schools to parks to business, which is a very remarkable number based on our experience with communities of this size. And so I'm curious how you translate this emerging culture that has these characteristics to really a 
civic capital that allows a community collectively to not only do one major project a year, but in or they're doing multiple major projects a year as multiple groups are self-organizing to build a new water park or to get the fire barn constructed. And it kind of speaks to your point about agency. So some thoughts on how this all translates into an increased civic capacity to undertake the work of community economic development. I wish there were a prescription, a recipe I could pull off the shelf and give your viewers. There's no simple way to do it. The initial conditions in every community are going to be somewhat different and it has to be generated within, but it starts with recognizing that it's built around relationships. It's built around the structures you have. It's built around the way you institutionalize arrangements in ways that create space for people. And then it's also putting those relationships at the top of the heap in terms of your interest. It's not that there isn't a bottom line of fiscal responsibility. It's that you develop and cultivate the trust that's needed. So I reflect on the evening first meeting we had, which engaged the mayor and a member of the county board and the city attorney and a number of different public sector folks. And then I think about how they describe things and then how some of our entrepreneurial subjects talked about their own experiences in the public realm now that they're in the private. And it's very clear that like many of these places, there is an entrenched distrust between these two layers of these small cultures. And they took baby steps to build that trust, but they cultivated that trust over time so that they didn't look, if they were in the public seat, look at the entrepreneur coming in and see them only as somebody trying to make something for themselves. And the entrepreneurs didn't see the municipal bureaucrats as someone just trying to stand in their way. That was hard-won capital. It came because they were intentional about putting, building the relationships in front of the deal per se. The deal would only work if there were common interests served. And you couldn't get to those common interests if you didn't build a relationship between the players. And the funny part of it is you would think in a small town, this would be an easier thing. But the reality is that often the stereotypes and the past history make those friction lines much more rigid. And sometimes there's good reason for it based on past behavior. But it's really an attitudinal shift. And it was very intentional on the part of people. But it was rewarding to hear people serving in these public positions talk about their own evolution as they understood that they were in a cooperative venture and that the city would be better off if they invested in these relationships. That's really, I think, where you start to talk about a proactive network, building a proactive network. Don't wait for the calamity to hit, but go out and look drive around town with Bob Stoll, and he's already seeing properties that maybe could use some attention or things that someone might think of as a problem and instead 
looking at it and saying, well, there's an opportunity. That's proaction. And then reaching out to people and being able to delegate. You can't do it all yourself. You don't need to do it all yourself. In fact, one of my first rules of politics is if you want to make a friend in politics, ask them to do something for you. And in small towns, that's part of building that trust. But having asked someone to do something, you have to empower them to be a little unfettered and work with it and be willing to accept that it may not be ideal, but it's a step forward. And that the relationship you're building is as important as the outcome. So those are some of the things. I think the other one that comes through is that there is a sense in Ord always that it's developmental, that it isn't that there's a finished product, that it's all emergent. So you see in this small community, a really swell aquatic center and bike path, but well, there's more to be done. There's more to build on this. That development is a kind of a zeitgeist or a general feeling that is applied not just to the community, but to its relationship to the county, its relationship to the region, its relationship to the individuals in the city. These would be some of the orientations. And again, I wish I had a perfect prescription for you. And it may sound trite, but I think, especially in these smaller communities, trust is absolutely so necessary. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say it's a hard thing to get, especially in this environment we're living in today. It's a very fractionated environment and communities that can't find ways to build this into their fabric are going to have little ability to resist the broader trends around us. My experience has been it is hard. It takes diligent work to build those relationships and it takes time. This idea that you've got to move slow before you can move fast kind of fits into that. We've got to start wrapping up, but I want to give you an opportunity to share some final thoughts, but also let our listeners know about how they can learn more about your work. Obviously, we've got the various interviews and stories that you've curated, but you've put together a special piece on this leadership. David, some final thoughts and where people can learn more about your work with respect to ORD. One final thought on the last point. I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight how important the existence of the Nebraska Community Foundation and external supports for ORD have been in its history. But more important than that, it's that ORD and the people there sought those out and have been open to accepting advice they were being given and then implementing it. And that's much more rare. So I would say to communities or people that are listening from other communities, don't just go seeking help. Be sure you're following up on it and actually taking initiative and bringing it into your own agency. Some big issues, just to point one contextual thing for you, there's a long-term anti-urban bias in American culture and a tendency to romanticize rural areas. That has produced in the intellectual world an urban-rural divide. That is to say, the world is either this or it's that. And from my perspective, internationally and in the United States, I don't see that as very helpful. I work in what's called the peri-urban. I have a much more continuum notion of the environment we live in. It's not really the case most of these rural people are living on farms. They're engaged in the urban world. And even in farming, 
you're in this very urban society world. That dichotomy, I think, gets in the way sometimes of being innovative in a smaller community and recognizing your connection to those environments. Ord has reached out in its recruitment of people and in its product development, in seeing itself in the ecosystem. And the ecosystem is this broader urban and rural. It's a plus arrangement, not an either or. So I think that's a really important contextual factor that I wanted to bring in. My work, I think for the ideas we're talking about today, if you look on the podcast website, the paper we've been discussing is up there or will be shortly. Eventually, our interviews and work will be available as well. And I can always be reached at Nebraska Wesleyan University. And I'm thrilled to talk to people about the kinds of things we've been discussing today. Well, David, first of all, thank you for your work in ORD. It's been a real joy to have you part of the team. You've brought insight that I'm not sure otherwise we would have realized. And so thank you for that. Thank you for being a guest on this edition of Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. So thanks for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure, Don, as always. Working with you is a true joy on multiple levels, and the work is rewarding. Great. Well, I just want to remind our listeners about some of the resources. David mentioned the paper that we'll make available as part of this podcast, but you can also find other resources through our website at energizingentrepreneurs.org. There's a whole set of free resources through that website. You can also join our E2 National Practitioners Network, which would give you access to our framework for helping rural communities like Ord develop an entrepreneurial community. We also have a monthly electronic newsletter. That's the best place where you can get access to the most recent information we're putting out. And of course, through all of the various platforms, we can encourage you to sign up for our podcast so that you can continue to listen to that. In the coming month, we've got some pretty interesting topics, including we'll have Deb Markley with Locus Impact Investing and our friend Dan from Ohio Rural Action. And they'll be focusing on the multi-year Central Appalachia E2 initiative. They're just finishing up capturing a series of stories and insights from that remarkable work. So stay tuned for future additions to Pathways to Rural Prosperity. On behalf of David and myself and our entire team at E2, thank you for joining us today. Best wishes, and we hope you find this information valuable in your journey to grow stronger rural communities in America. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Mm-hmm.